This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week from Gadigal Land. I'm David Lipson. Coming up, China's warning that Australia could trigger an arms race after news the US is planning to deploy up to six long-range bombers to the Northern Territory. Is it making us safer? And in the days since Elon Musk has taken over Twitter, he's fired thousands of staff and delisted the company. We look at where the social media giant is heading. But first... The Reserve Bank governor's warning borrowers to brace for more interest rate rises in coming months, with runaway inflation now expected to overtake earlier grim expectations. The federal budget forecast for inflation didn't even last a week. Labor's economic blueprint suggested it would peak this year at seven and three quarter percent. On Tuesday, it went higher yet again. Philip Lowe was particularly bleak about the perils and evils of inflation. It's now expected to peak at 8% by Christmas. According to the Reserve Bank, the rate of inflation is likely to stay higher for longer. It's happening all over the world as the war in Ukraine drags on, food and energy costs surge and the COVID bounce back continues, driving up the price of pretty much everything. Here in Australia, rising inflation is the reason we've seen seven interest rate rises in a row, the latest just this week. But still, inflation is going in the wrong direction. I work in the hospital and we worry about money all the time. And being like on minimum wage as oh, like teenagers, it's, you can't really afford anything that you need. Family holidays seem to be going down the toilet rapidly. John Keogh is economics editor at the Australian Financial Review. Well, there has been entrenched inflation now in Australia and it's been building for most of this year. We saw the Reserve Bank react with another interest rate rise this week. And that's after inflation came in at a higher than expected 7.3%, which is, you know, well and truly more than double the 2 to 3% target ban that the Reserve Bank targets for inflation. So, Uh, Just like the rest of the world, Australia now has an entrenched inflation problem. It's not quite as high as the US and the UK, but uh, maybe we're only a quarter or two behind of where they're at. And it's expected to go higher than we expected just a week prior. Exactly. Uh, Originally, we thought inflation might be peaking in the high sevens, around about seven and three quarters percent. That was according to the federal budget and also the Reserve Bank's previous forecast. The RBA now says it's probably going to go over around about eight percent or so. And they've kept underestimating the inflation. And it wouldn't be a surprise, actually, if it goes even higher than what they're forecasting because they've repeatedly underestimated it. Right. So as a result, we've had seven interest rate rises in a row. They were meant to be helping put a lid on inflation. Why is it still going in the wrong direction? Well, monetary policy does take some time to have its full impact. Uh, Most expert economists say it lags and it takes about 12 to 18 months to have the full impact. So the other factor is at the moment, Although the Reserve Bank's increased interest rates seven times, it takes about two to three months for that actually even to impact someone's cash flow on their mortgage because by the time the bank announces it, passes it on, and then starts deducting it from your monthly mortgage payments, 
it can take like 60 to 90 days. So people have been very cashed up during the pandemic as well because they've had to stay at home. There's been a lot of stimulus payments. Interest rates were low. So they've got this sort of buffer, financial buffer, that they're still out there spending as well. Most people are spending really strongly. Uh, Retail sales figures have still been strong as well. So those confluence events means the interest rate rises really aren't biting consumer activity yet. But you'd expect probably after Christmas, when people get their credit card bills, start paying those higher interest rates on their mortgage, that they will start to pull back on their spending. Of course, it's not a uniform thing, though, is it? Because there are certainly already people who are hurting badly. I don't know how much more I can take. It's it's really tight now. We're sort of thinking if it gets too much higher, I'm going to try and get another family member to move in to help us keep the house in the family. It's really stressful. It's very hard for, for me to understand how this is helpful for the economy. Where is it hurting people the most, especially considering that there's going to be more likely interest rate rises on the way? Yeah, look, there will be uh, a small minority of households who will be finding it particularly tough already because you've got higher inflation, higher energy cost, obviously. Petrol's still fairly expensive. And then you layer on top of that anyone with a mortgage in that situation in a sort of lower uh, income household who's just managed to get on the property ladder in the last few years thought the Reserve Bank wasn't going to raise rates until around about 2024. Uh, look, that won't be the majority of people. Some people will have to pull back their spending, but it is it is worth bearing in mind there will be some people at the margin who will find this extremely difficult. Yeah, and, and those people are usually lower income earners mm. uh, because many of the, the things that, that, are, that are getting more expensive are, are necessities, aren't they, like energy and food? Exactly right. And rent as well. Uh, rent's starting to go up as well. And this is, it's its not just an energy story from the war in Ukraine driving up inflation. That's part of the story. But there's a lot of domestic pressures now driving inflation too. And this is something the Reserve Bank's pointed to as well. Uh, and that's why they're saying they have to raise interest rates to try and cool down consumer spending in the economy. They're actually trying to get people to spend less, slow down the economy, and avoid a recession, but slow it enough so people just pull back there on their spending and businesses don't keep putting up their prices. You mentioned that inflation is now somewhat entrenched. We see that it's going to be higher than predicted, but it's also going to last longer than expected. So how entrenched do you think it's going to be over the next year, two years or or longer? Well, I think this was the big tell from the Reserve Bank this week. Uh, They said even after inflation peaks at around about 8% late this year, they still expect it to be higher than the target band for the next couple of years. So up around four and three quarter percent through next year. And then even in 2024, they're saying it's going to be a bit above the 3% top of the target band. And it's pretty rare for central banks to actually admit through their forecast range, through that entire two or three year period, they're not going to be able to get inflation back into their target. And so essentially, because inflation is going to be entrenched higher for longer, it means interest rates are going to be higher for longer. And there had been talk that, look, maybe the Reserve Bank could start cutting interest rates in the second half or late next year. You'd have to say, based on their inflation forecast, that's extremely unlikely. And what does that mean for government policy, in particular, the stage three tax cuts? 
Yeah, I think it generally as a fiscal policy sense, it means that government needs to be pulling back, not adding aggregate demands to the economy. This is federal and state governments at the moment. Now, if inflation's going to be high above the RBA's target range in the second half of 2024 when the stage three tax cuts come in, that does raise a question about whether it's the right time to be bringing those tax cuts in and putting more money in people's pockets. Now, it's still a couple of years away. We don't know for sure that inflation is going to be above the RBA's t- target. But if it looks like it is, I think uh, Jim Chalmers, the treasurer, who's who's no real fan of the stage three tax cuts, let's be honest, uh, he'll be using that as a reason to potentially curtail them, defer them or, or, or wind them back or cut them. And what else should or could the government be doing? Well, I think the government's uh, federal and state probably need to be pulling back on infrastructure spending more as well. They can defer and cancel projects. There's a huge amount of demand out there for labour in the construction industry at the moment. They're competing with the private sector. There's skill shortage. Material prices have gone up a lot. So governments, I think, should be looking to defer or cancel some of those infrastructure projects, particularly ones that don't really pass cost-benefit analysis. And, um, you know, it was curious that the federal government allocated $2.2 billion to the Victoria Suburban Railing just before the Victorian election when Victoria's own Auditor General had called that into question and it hasn't sort of got on the Infrastructure Australia independent approval list either. So there's projects like that, even though that's a longer-term project, there'd be other ones in the shorter term as well. It's such a tricky line to, to walk, isn't it? Because we're also being warned of a, of a global economic slowdown, possibly recession uh, on the cards. So cancelling projects, stopping mm. tax cuts, you know, stimulus might be what we need in in a year or two. Uh, you know, how does the not just the government but the Reserve Bank walk that line? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think if we do go into a global downturn or indeed even a recession, it's different, as Jim Chalmers has pointed to, to previous downturns like the global financial crisis, like the pandemic, where stimulus was required. Actually, if you've got a recession or stagflation happening, uh, even though there's less of a case for stimulus in that case because inflation would still be high and it'd still be entrenched, unfortunately, it means there wouldn't be less of a case for stimulus because that might just fuel some of the inflation that central banks are trying to rid from their economies. And so everyday people just have to wear it, the recession that we would have to have, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, Australia could still avoid recession. I think the UK and the US very likely to have recessions. In fact, the Bank of England has admitted they might be in recession for up to two years. The US Federal Reserve has sort of indicated it's prepared to put its economy into a recession if it has to to get inflation under control. Australia, look, the one thing we have going for us more than other countries at the moment, we don't have a wage price spiral that's actually contributing to the inflation problem like some of those other countries I mentioned do have. So we could avoid it. But the the government's hands are sort of tied because as the Prime Minister and the Treasurer have indicated, throwing more money out to people in cash handouts is only going to fuel the inflation problem and make things worse and force the Reserve Bank to jack up interest rates even higher and possibly make a recession worse. That's John Kehoe, Economics Editor at the Australian Financial Review. China issued more warnings to Australia this week after news of growing military collaboration with America. 
China has warned a build-up of defence assets in the Northern Territory could start an arms race in the region. It was a response to revelations by ABC's Four Corners program that the US is preparing to send up to six B-52 bombers to Australia. The US Air Force has drawn up detailed plans to build dedicated facilities for the B-52s at Tyndall Air Base south of Darwin. The huge aircraft are capable of delivering both nuclear and conventional weapons over distances of more than 14,000 kilometres. That puts China and Taiwan well within their reach. The question that split defence analysts is whether it means Australia is locking itself into a possible war over Taiwan. I don't think anything is automatic. I think it's always got to be put in context and at the end of the day an Australian government will always act in Australia's national interests and um, I think everyone knows that. That's Paul Simon who's about to retire as the head of the Australian Secret Intelligence Service. What most experts agree on is that the issue could come to a head one way or another sooner than we expected. We are seeing in different places a new sense of urgency, a new sense that we need to be doing more to deter China from aggressive actions in the Indo-Pacific. Marcus Hellyer is a senior defence analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. So the first thing to say is that nobody wants to start a war over Taiwan except the Chinese Communist Party. That the term arms race is a standard piece of vocabulary that the Chinese Communist Party wheels out whenever the US or any of its allies acquire any military equipment. So they have a very standard script which they deploy and it says we need to avoid Cold War type behaviour and we need to avoid arms racing. So this is a term they have used many, many times, and it's not a new one that they're using in relation to the B-52s. And so it doesn't matter what capability we buy, they will still refer to it as Cold War mentality and arms racing. The other thing to note is that long-range bombers are a capability that the PLA, the the Chinese armed forces, have. Long-range missiles that can reach US bases are a capability they have. They are currently building warships at a greater rate than the US and its allies. And so they are arming themselves far more rapidly, effectively, than the US and its allies. Right. So how should we deter that military build-up? I mean, what else does Australia need to do? So Australia is not in this alone. So we are part of uh, an alliance with the US and the US has formal alliances with Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, Thailand. So the first uh, avenue of deterrence is to show unified resolve. And I think as we see from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, one of the most effective sort of responses to that was Western Europe standing together. So the the CCP tactic is always to divide and conquer. That was why they were essentially picking on Australia over the last few years through various forms of coercion, including sort of economic coercion. So they are, they are trying to essentially peel the US's allies away one by one. So the first point is everybody needs to stand together and work together. The next thing is in deterrence is you have to have credible capabilities. So you actually have to have 
military equipment that is effective. And then the next part of deterrence is you have to have resolve. So you have to convince an adversary that you are willing to use it. So that one of the challenges facing the US in terms of military capability is that it has a relatively limited number of bases in the Western Pacific. So it has a very large base in Guam, uh, which is US territory. It has a number of bases in mainland Japan, but also in Okinawa. It also has military assets in South Korea, but they are relatively limited and they're vulnerable to attack by Chinese long-range missiles, and also China has its own long-range bombers. So what the the US strategy is at the moment is, is a strategy of dispersal. So it's trying to take those assets, which are at the moment are relatively concentrated in a small number of bases, and distribute them more widely. So it makes it a, a harder task for the PLA to target all of those assets in all of those bases. So it's making itself more resilient, okay? So it can absorb more uh, Chinese missile attacks and still be able to keep on fighting. Right. So in your view, is a conflict over Taiwan now likely and when? And, and does that make Australia a target for China? I think one of the lessons out of Ukraine is to take authoritarian dictators at their word when they you know, say that they're going to act. So Xi Jinping has been saying for many years now that Taiwan will be uh, unified with China. And what has he's been saying is that the timeline to do that has been accelerating. When could that occur? Well, there's been a lot of analysis of that. Uh, you know, a lot of American sources think that it could occur certainly in the second half of this decade, uh, again, but there's a lot of discussion around that. So how do you stop that happening? Well, again, it's that deterrence principle. You're trying to convince the adversary that they can't successfully do that, that the cost to do that is prohibitive. And if they start, there's no way they can possibly win at any kind of acceptable cost. The, the challenge for the US and its allies is that Xi Jinping is willing to bear an extremely high cost to take Taiwan. And would that make Australia a target, that scenario? Australia is already a target. Okay, so Australia was probably a target during the Cold War. We're probably already a target now. That's the thing people need to understand is that there, there are no safe spaces. So just because we're down here in uh, the, the Southern Hemisphere doesn't mean we are immune to the effects of war. Now, it is conceivable that Chinese conventional missiles could reach Northern Australia or cruise missiles launched from long-range bombers could reach northern Australia. And we currently don't have any systems that are capable of defeating long-range ballistic missiles. China does not have infinite numbers of missiles. And so, you know, you start to get into their targeting calculus, calculus and go, well, what are the highest priority targets for them to prosecute? You know, would it be Darwin? Well, 
potentially? Would it be Tyndall? Potentially. But, you know, one of the reasons the US is adopting a dispersal strategy and rotating assets through Northern Australia is it's still a pretty long way from China. So, It's theoretically possible that China could strike targets in northern Australia. It's quite hard to do. Firing ballistic missiles all that way with conventional high explosive is pretty economically ineffective way (laughs) to conduct a war, shall we say. It takes a lot of resources to move a relatively small amount of high explosive, but it's conceivable that should a war start over Taiwan or in the South China Sea, the Chinese might want to send a message and direct a a small number of missiles our way. That's Marcus Hellyer, a senior defence analyst at Aspie. The world's richest man sealed a deal this week many thought would never happen. Elon Musk signed a contract to buy Twitter back in April for more than 40 billion US dollars. But then the tech billionaire said he was walking away. Tesla founder Elon Musk has told Twitter he wants out of that $44 billion deal to buy the company. The world's richest man pulled out late on Friday, saying the company hadn't given him enough information about fake accounts. Twitter launched legal action. Elon Musk countersued. Then finally, in October, he came back to the table. He's changed his mind about buying Twitter again and is now willing to go ahead with his takeover. The surprise reversal comes just weeks before the two sides were due in court. And since he's taken over, it's been nearly as eventful. So he started immediately with people on top. The first day there, he fired the existing CEO. He appears to be acting as temporary CEO of the company. He's brought on a lot of his, I guess, cronies, people he's worked with, um, all men from the tech industry to kind of help run it. And the job losses kept coming. By the end of the week, thousands of employees had been laid off. Heather Kelly is a technology reporter at The Washington Post. It's, it's funny, we're not entirely sure what changes have actually been rolled out, but we know what changes he's announcing his intention to do. And I have a hunch sometimes the people within Twitter are just as surprised to learn about them as we are. So the biggest one we've seen is this idea that they're going to charge $8 a month for verification, sort of a subscription service. Uh, verification is something they've always offered for free in part to combat misinformation. And it's it's just always been sort of a functional feature that makes Twitter easier to use. Musk seems to see it as something he can charge for, a quick way to get some revenue. So that's the next thing we could see roll out. Yeah, and there was this extraordinary kind of real-time negotiation too with author Stephen King. <laughs> there, there were early rumours, and I, I do believe that they were actually weighing this inside, that it was going to cost $20 a month. And Stephen King, the author, heard that news and immediately went on Twitter of course, to say that's silly, I would never pay that. And another... I think you used some spicier language than that. <laughs> this is a public radio station. Um, and then a, another person on Musk's team did like a quiz on Twitter. What would you pay for verification? And the number they finally decided on also apparently in real time, as you said, was $8. Yeah. And then Elon Musk, you know, replied to Stephen King and said, how about $8? It was quite extraordinary. So so what does all of this tell us, do you think, about the direction that Elon Musk is planning to take the company? It, it, one thing that seems very clear is he did pay $44 billion for this company, but he's very much interested in turning it around, making it somewhat profitable. You know, he had to, to do a lot of things to get this much money and investors aren't going to let him 
just let Twitter keep on being the way it is. Uh, because it's he, not making money, is it? Uh, I don't believe it is as profitable as people would like. Uh, most of the revenue does come from advertising, which is also another group Musk has spooked a little bit this past week. They were fearful that more hate speech could be on the platform, more unpleasant posts that they wouldn't really want their ads next to. So he's in a, an interesting position of trying to please his fan base, which wants more, quote unquote, free speech. They want to be able to uh, say more problematic things, perhaps, or spread misinformation without being censored. And that's the opposite of what advertisers want. And he has to sort of pick a side there. Yeah, that's fascinating because I think probably the biggest question around Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter is, is what it'll mean for free speech, uh, hate speech on, on the platform. He suggested that he wants fewer limits on content, uh, you know, talking about freeing the bird, which, of course, the bird is the, the, the symbol <laughs> of Twitter. Um, what, what has he done in that space so far? And, and what do you think we can expect in the future? It was interesting. And the day after he took over, I don't believe there were any policy changes or moderation changes within Twitter, but there was immediately a spike in hate speech and uh, uses of racial slurs on the site. And it's just because I believe a large fan base of Musk and uh, a large group of Twitter users who felt they weren't really welcome on that platform thought this meant that they could go and do that now. I don't know if any moderation changes have technically taken place so far. So it is still moderating these things like hate speech. And it's something that I think is on pause until at least after the election. This is his first experience with actually having to moderate. He's always talked about free speech, but he's never been in the position of actually seeing what that means behind the scenes. And I, I have a feeling it's going to be a little uglier than perhaps he assumed. Yeah, and, and you touched on this, but just just run us through the, the backlash that, uh, that that space has has seen with advertisers, even you know celebrities leaving the platform. There's been a number of celebrities. I would say they're more B or C-list celebrities. No <laughs> offense to celebrities. I'm not one. So that's still impressive. But there have been a, a number of prolific Twitter users saying, I will no longer be posting here. I'm leaving. One thing I think we are seeing, a lot of people are going to a small site called Mastodon, which is sort of an alternative to Twitter, but it's still a little more technical than most of Twitter's users could really get into. Maybe they're just leaving Twitter altogether. I think what we're going to see a lot more of is people being quiet on Twitter and slowly watching it unfold or devolve and then deciding what they're going to do next. Quiet on Twitter. That is a novel idea. So we have um, <laughs> if only. we have midterm elections coming up in America. Uh, Donald Trump is still banned from Twitter after the January 6th Capitol riot. Is he going to be allowed back? And, and what more broadly is all of this going to mean for American politics and, and political unrest? So Musk has suggested repeatedly in the past that he would lift the ban on Donald Trump's account. As of now, it is still completely banned. Uh, former President Trump has his own social network, Truth Social, so it, it might actually not be in his best interest financially to go back to Twitter. But politically, of course, that's where he got the most traction in the past. It sounds like Twitter is going gonna, is gonna to put a little bit of a pause on any big changes around its election integrity efforts until after the midterms, which are next week. And then it, it might reconsider it. So hopefully you won't see any big impact on what's coming up, but the impact could be more down the line looking towards the next elections. That's technology reporter Heather Kelly from The Washington Post. Well, that's this week's episode and a gentle reminder to subscribe to This Week, which is produced by Madeline Jenner, Nell Whitehead, Will Ockenden and me, David Lipson. 